Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. What if I told you there was a bank that's offering 4.1% interest on dollar deposits, 1% on Bitcoin deposits, that supports global payment transfers in stable coins, pounds, or euros, has minimal fees, and even offers $100,000 of deposit insurance per account? Oh, and they're regulated and licensed too. Well, until recently, I'd have said that bank doesn't exist. But actually, it's called Zappo, and it's been around since the early days of crypto. My guest this week is Joey Garcia, who's Zappo's head of regulatory affairs. Joey and I talk about his experience working to pass some of the earliest digital asset regulation in Gibraltar, and how today Zappo Bank is building a modern financial services business that combines Bitcoin, stablecoins, and fiat into one easy-to-use system. We also talk about the EU's new MECA regulation and how that might eventually impact DeFi platforms, and how Joey is seeing grassroots crypto adoption all around the world. Last thing before we jump in, just last week we published the Chainalysis mid-year update on crypto crime statistics. The headline is interesting. Overall, crypto crime is down 65% in the first half of 2023 compared to the same time last year. But we've also seen a significant increase in ransomware activity, returning to a pace not seen since 2021. Head to the show notes for a link to the full blog. Hey everyone, this is live from Amsterdam, a Live From Links podcast of Public Key. Today I'm joined by Joey Garcia, Director and Head of Regulatory Affairs for Zappo Bank. Joey, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here and lovely to be down in Amsterdam as well. Oh, it's terrific. Normally you're in Gibraltar, right? I am down in Gibraltar, a long, interesting history in the space, which is, it's actually a pretty cool story, if you want me to give you. Yeah, I, well, so my experience in Gibraltar when I was at university, had the opportunity to travel through there for a few days. You know, I've been on the rock, I've seen the monkeys, had them steal some food from my Dining backpackers. Stuff. That's my experience, it kind of ends there, but that was 25 years ago. Now it's this hub of cryptocurrency. So maybe talk a little bit about what's going on in Gibraltar and, and how does Zappo Bank fit into all of that? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it's a really, really cool story because back in the day, this was like 2014. So around 2014, Wences Casares, he was traveling the world, uh, looking for sort of jurisdictions, a bit of an assessment. And he came down to Gibraltar. We had a load of conversation. He started yeah. talking to you about this concept of this open network and this immutably recorded unit of value that yeah. was scarce. And so very early, pre-Ethereum. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And we started having the conversation. And in that context, he said to me, you know, it would be really interesting if you could get a jurisdiction to actually build out law and regulation for this space. It would be incredible. It doesn't exist in the world. But he thought that that was going to happen and it was going to come. The rest of the world, you know, 2019 and the fact of recommendations, et cetera, et cetera, started to kick in. But we started that working group. You were five years early. Yeah, five years early. And, you know, back then, call a working group with some government authorities and regulatory authorities. Some of them would send like enforcement teams or one sent like a police officer once to the meeting. It was, what the hell is this and what are you trying to yeah. do? So it was an interesting journey, but that whole sort of law and framework came into place in like 2017, yeah. 20, beginning of 2018. When um, Wences came to talk to you, what were you doing at the time? Were you aware of crypto? Were you in, in Not really. Bitcoin? Yeah. Not really. I mean, 2014, I was, I was learning and he was delivering a kind of message around the concept of what this was. And in that place, like small jurisdictions can move quickly, right? Yeah. So there's no like secret about that. So go way before the idea of like virtual asset regulation or VASP standards or whatever you want to call it. 
there were other industries. There was the gaming industry. Now, you know, we're in 2023, people are talking about the EU, Amica, et cetera, et cetera, but small jurisdictions are much more nimble. They're much quicker and they can adapt and set standards which are actually significantly higher than exist in most of the rest of the world. So it was a great, interesting story. And back then, obviously, again, back in the day, beginning of time, Zappo, the largest Bitcoin custodian in the world, about 800,000 BTC, I think it was at the time. And again, the concept of all of the other stuff, cold storage, the Fort Knox of Bitcoin, all of these sort of ideas of building bunkers and underground bunkers and massive different continents around the globe. It was all very novel and new. So it was a group that was very much on the front end of that. It was a group on the very front end of pushing the concept of regulation and regulatory standards and on the front end of lots of stuff. And that's kind of where we are today, if you like, the sort of whole banking touch point as well. It's pretty amazing. So when Wences comes to you and says, hey, help me build out this regulatory framework, is your first reaction like, absolutely, Bitcoin makes all the sense in the world to me, I'm all in? Or was there a moment of skepticism, consideration? It was a moment of learning, but like with most people, in that world, you've got to try it. You have yeah. to understand it. You have to gain some exposure. You have to have an open mind. You have to be willing to consider things and, and investigate. And, and that's really what the trigger was for me. To start it, I was a lawyer, so I wanted to build new standards. They call sort of people in this space that early on sort of legal entrepreneurs. You want to operate within a, a system, yeah. but arguably the system that exists doesn't really work. So you want to build new standards. You want to build new frameworks. You want to work to, to support and help build a secure ecosystem and that's been definitely in my role to sort of push at the front of that and then of course in the Zappo context way way back so post the big cold storage based infrastructure we wanted to issue credit cards debit cards uh, didn't exist at the time so yeah. we went through this whole process and obtained the e-money license and were the first card issuer in relation to a link to your bitcoin account yeah which back today is relatively standard i don't want to say standard but it exists Back then it didn't really work. And then we sort of went beyond that. So your e-money, you know, what, what are the biggest differentiating factors that can exist? And that was kind of like the banking you know, sort of trigger front end of development of a new ecosystem and I mean you've seen it we've seen it everyone's seen it development of these concepts I mean I love talking about sort of the history of consensus mechanisms you know Persian armies agreeing sort of where to invade at what times and then you had like cryptography and you had the enigma machines and the second world war it's evolution things continue to evolve to new standards and then we've come to this again concept of the internet and you move beyond that this concept of an internet value and it becomes sort of more interesting. Then you have this banking world that sits behind it. Again, opposing change. So yeah. banks opposed, my goodness, go back to ATMs. That was crazy, right? <laughs> the idea of like drawing cash from a machine or a wall instead of speaking to a bank teller, massive opposition. Then you had internet banking, that was crazy. Right? The concept of getting access to your bank account through a computer, that was seriously opposed. I'll tell you what, in the United States right now, in 2023, there are people who are with a straight face arguing that the reason that we've seen these bank collapses is in part due to the fact that people have smartphone apps that allow them to move money quickly. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> it, is, it is actually quite incredible. But now, if you think about all of these new infrastructures that are developing, 
and this new technology and these new efficiencies. I mean, every every industry has evolved, right? So the, yeah. you have the music industry back in the sort of shared Pirate Bay Napster universe of yeah. sharing files. Yeah. That evolved to like what Spotify and Apple Music, etc., are today. So yeah, you know, Skype and sort of telecoms interactions, how that works across the world, that's evolved to me being able to I don't know, call through WhatsApp and do all my stuff over, over VoIP. And, but payments and sort of banking services haven't really evolved. So when you talk to me and you say, well, there's a guy and he moves to jurisdiction A and he wants to send money to jurisdiction B, to his family or whatever it is, and he's got to pay, I don't know, three, seven, 12%. It's gonna take three days to settle. It's got a big cost. It's incredibly inefficient. And by the way, it's almost impossible for that guy to get access to the payments network through a banking relationship in the country he's moved to. It just seems strange. So if you think about the concept of Zappo, at the moment, it's operating as a bank. So really, really secure. You have your 4.1% interest-bearing US dollar account. Very, very safe, very, very secure. No fractional banking, no lending. None of that stuff that exists. Just simple, safe, trustworthy, and secure. But in interaction with a blockchain-based payment settlement system. At the moment, it's USDC. So you could send from your USD bank account at the touch of a button on a conversion, a cross-border, immediate, almost zero-cost transaction to anyone, anywhere. And it acts as an access point, right? So you know, I'm sure, all the world of DeFi, all the world of these exchanges, how they operate, etc. How do you interact? How do you create a bridge between one universe and the other? And that was the vision of where we wanted to focus, being that bridge, being that intersection between those two worlds. So I, I have a bunch of questions here. So go for it. who can sign up for a Zappo bank account? Do I need to be in Gibraltar or anyone around the world? No, I mean, you can apply to become a member from anywhere. Obviously, okay. we have our restricted country list, etc. Sure, sure. But you can open and apply to become a member. And again, conceptually, I mean, Wences is a great example. Back yeah. in the day, Argentina, his family lived through, I don't know, three currency collapses. But of course, if you live in Argentina, you live in Mexico, you live in wherever it is. If you live in Zimbabwe and you're very concerned about the value of your holdings, your life savings, yeah. uh, you have little faith in your central bank sure. or whatever it might be. In the olden days, you know you wanted to open a Swiss bank account yeah right but you know do that today the minimum account opening balances are what 10 million 15 million out of reach of most people yeah it's, sure. it's, it's inaccessible yeah so again we, we don't operate in that way at all we yeah. want to be an accessible option for those people to maintain the assets securely safely but we're a crypto native bank and that sounds easy but I think it's really really interesting I mean a lot of people talk about CBDCs now it's like a big rage at the moment right right so CBDCs sure. and, and I will say I, I also always say the same thing like the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve or the ECB whoever it is that starts to issue massive CBDC based local currency based digital assets that's amazing but all of the banks need to be able to support that infrastructure as well so yeah you know you do in the UK it'll be whatever Barclays and RBS and these guys yeah. have to have wallet based functions and features within their applications they need to be able to transact between that network and yeah. the payments network and all of that will happen it will happen eventually but we're already doing it we do it on stablecoin open networks not within cbdc arguably yeah. restrictions sure. that are going to be factored in and we do it now so we're talking about the context of zap and the evolution and evolution technology
technology, evolution of new systems, new frontiers, and, and that's what I think we're pushing on. So I'm fascinated with this idea of US dollar to USDC transfers. So I can send to another bank and the payment rail is USDC, but then it shows up as dollars, or can I send to a crypto wallet or potentially send directly to a DeFi protocol yeah. from my Zappo bank exactly. or all of the above? So in summary, it works both ways. So US dollars from my US dollar bank account, it's sitting there earning interest, and I can use it with my debit card to buy my Starbucks, pay for my flight. But when I want to deliver the US dollars to, let's call it a DeFi-related platform yeah. or an unhosted wallet, yeah. whatever it might be, it's an auto-conversion at no cost. So it's an API integration with Circle, yeah. et cetera, and that happens USD to USDC and hits a destination address. You can conduct whatever activity you want and whatever network you want. You can take the risk that you choose to take on any platform but when that is doing well or you've done well or whatever it is you need the rails both ways so USDC into your bank account in USD is also works so you could send your USDC into your effectively bank account and then it sits there securely so we're the pillar of security and the access and exit point to let's call it the web3 universe that's amazing I might have to go sign up right after <laughs> we're done with the podcast the last question I had for you about what you said was 4.1% interest rate but no fractional banking. And this this is a thing that is a hot topic in the United States right yeah. now. We've seen a couple of bank failures. Absolutely. And primarily driven off of short-term deposits and long-dated treasuries. Exactly. Interest rates moved against the banks and then assets they were holding exactly. backing these short-term deposits suddenly valued less. People get a little shaky on confidence side. Yeah. Deposits yeah. flee, banks collapse. How are you able to offer the 4% interest if you're not lending out deposits on the other side? I'm going to go beyond that. So on the bank side and on the VASP side, on the on the VASP side, it's Bitcoin only. Yeah. And by the way, the Bitcoin is also 1% yielding at zero risk. Wow. So we don't touch your BTC. We deploy our own assets and we'll pay our users 1% interest at zero risk. I won't go into the whole security standards and protection standards that exist around that. So it's sort of quasi banking, but yeah. I can't call it a bank. The VASP is not the bank. Yeah. On the bank account, it's all ultra secure, short term treasuries overnight, very, very short term. We know the risks that can exist around those sort of long dated markets against short term inflation and interest rate rises, etc. Yeah. So we simply don't want any of that exposure. When I say trusted, secure, simple, safe, I mean, that at the whole business is built on that model. That is the way that we operate as a matter of fact. It's very, very simple. So I always say, you've got to trust your bank. People, when they open bank accounts, there's a certain standard, you just accept it. Hey, that's a bank, so it must be okay. Yeah. People don't perform like a deep dive due diligence on a bank when they open their account. And I don't expect that they will, but they need to understand something about the model. And same with the VASP, that's even more extreme because on the VASP side of things, there are lots of registered platforms from around the world. I mean, the FTX example could be one, but there are many, many, many that simply operate to AML standards. So you cannot be a fully compliant, massive global multi-billion dollar cross-border exchange platform for derivatives if you're simply conducting AML. How many people know the VASP? Banking standards find there can be quasi differences between a bank registered in London, New York, Singapore, but broadly they operate to a certain standard. VASPs don't do that. So I would super encourage people to look at, I mean, not again, 
proper onboarding in DD, but understand the business. Look at the board, look at the management team, like understand something about the core business of that entity. I think that's really important. So we, yeah. we want people to know how we operate on the banking side and how we operate on the VASP side. I don't think there's a more secure ecosystem out there, but obviously I, I'm very biased. I think it's a great point. I mean, one of the big takeaways that I hope people in the crypto ecosystem learn from 2022 is if you don't understand how the business is generating the interest that you are being paid on your deposits, you should be concerned. Absolutely. Right. I'm Absolutely. not saying that you need to audit the existence of every asset backing your deposits necessarily. That probably takes it a step too far, but at least have a basis of understanding of the profit generating strategy yeah, of I the think. entity you're depositing money I, into. I agree. And that's on the bank side of things. On the FASP side of things, I think you should really be looking at that in a lot more detail. I ran some for certain authorities around the world. I ran these sort of fake FTX blowups in those jurisdictions. So we would like run a test case yeah. of, okay, you feel that you've built a standard and you're regulating the space. Let's run an FTX scenario and see yeah. what you would have captured and what you wouldn't have captured. And most of them, they wouldn't really have captured anything. They wouldn't have seen it coming. They no, they wouldn't have. Wouldn't have the, 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 there are like yeah. core principles of consumer protection in a regulated business. But, you know, whatever it is, internal controls, resilience, proper segregation of assets. Do the authorities understand what they're monitoring? Do they have the capacity? I mean, the Bahamas with FTX, just as an example, I think legally they had a requirement for the segregation of assets. Did they have the capacity to monitor and enforce that? I don't think that they did. But do users actually understand that? People who are actually using that platform? I don't think that they did either. So there's a lot to do. And I'm always pushing for sort of standard setting and raising the bar, but it's a learning process. Can I ask about the segregation of accounts and third-party custodians? So in the banking world, it's very standard. There's custodian banks like in the U.S. and yeah. they operate globally. Bank of New York, State Street, yeah. Northern Trust are kind of the three big custodians that hold funds on behalf of banks that you or I might do business with. Yeah. And that creates a layer of segregation in the case of a bank failure. You know assets are being held by yeah. another responsible party. In the case of FTX, clearly there was commingling of funds yeah. that were FTX, you know, sort of the yeah. assets on balance sheet of the entity and customer funds and yeah. it all got blended together and it yeah. was very hard to tell it apart. Yeah. And clearly some customer funds got spent that shouldn't have been or invested or moved into, you know, other assets. How do you think about that at Zappo, this third-party custodian, and where do you see this going from a regulatory perspective? Because yeah. I know it's different in certain markets, like Malaysia, for example, requires third-party custodians. Yeah, absolutely. Banking is one thing. So underneath banking, you have, yeah, let's call it e-money or electronic money standards. And under e-money standards, there's a requirement for segregation and safeguarding of those accounts. Yeah. It's very different to a bank. So again, some people use the word banking or banking services a bit widely, and they're actually talking about payment services or e-money. It's not really banking. But on an e-money side of things, it's an easy example. You have to have those assets segregated, stored, and safeguarded in a segregated account. In the VASP world, that also doesn't exist. So the question is, do the authorities want to 
introduce a layer of custody and effective segregation requirements that matches an e-money standard. We already do it. We already have it as a standard. We're required to do it under the law that we operate in Gibraltar, actually. We have ongoing dialogue with the authorities who've actually just performed a sort of thematic review of everyone's custody infrastructure that operates and is licensed there. And we have, like Zappos specifically, additional layers of protection. So we have the security, we have the capital, we have the business continuity and wind-down provisions. And then within our terms, we have another 30,000 BTC, which is like a fourth layer of protection. So even in the ultra, 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 ultra worst case scenario, yeah. there's an additional layer of protection. So we take it like uber, uber seriously. But is there a requirement for, if you use a third party custodian, let's say in Malaysia, wherever it might be, to what extent are you actually reading the terms of those custody arrangements to make sure that that custodian isn't themselves mixing the assets of your sure. platform with others? Some people don't even look at that. I would guarantee almost no one looks at it. Well, Exactly. So this is a standard setting, right? You've got to be at the front pushing for these ideas and concepts. We all, we all have the same objective. We want to have a secure and safe ecosystem that allows people to interact with this new world. Now, one of your roles outside of Zappo, you do some work with the UN mm -hmm. as an advisor consultant. And I, you've kind of touched on this experience being able to run some of these tabletop exercises. But I think you're also trying to bring a level of expertise into yeah. markets where digital asset regulation is still developing. Talk a little bit about about what you're seeing out there. Like where are we converging? Maybe there's not convergence, but it seems like Europe has kind of led the way with the first kind of coherent and comprehensive regulation around digital assets with Mika. Like, are you seeing things that look similar to that being adopted in other other jurisdictions or is it is there a divergence to, to other rules and, and regs? I wouldn't say that the EU is like completely leading the way. I think okay. that's a bit of a misunderstanding. That's because, my American-centric view yeah, of the no, world. Yeah, no, no, right? no, it's not an American-centric. It's, it's definitely Definitely a sort of common thing. People often talk about Mika as being like the GDPR of crypto regulation. You know, they yeah. set a standard on data privacy and those, etc. And now, like Mika is the new world. But you know, lots of parts of the world have been doing this for a long time. Look yeah. at the first drafts of some of the law in Thailand. I think it was 2016 or 2017. They've evolved and developed, and lots of those markets have evolved and developed. And they've evolved in a way that is very different. I would say very open to discussing things, to looking at things. You have a problem you have a risk and then what is the solution that sounds simple but if you have an open network if you're sitting in dialogue with experts if you're having those interactions with the industry you can evolve things in a certain way and if you don't if you're operating in a binary no no we've had this law for 50 years therefore it all applies that doesn't really work and I would say in the discussions and interactions that I've had, there are very open standards. I mean, the Philippines, as an example, has prepared the sort of draft proposal for a framework for regulating decentralized finance in a new and innovative way. People talk about that under the Mika umbrella as Mika 2 in five years' time and whatever it might be. So I don't know. I, I think there's a big world out there. It's also the cross-border digital universe. So forming your base in one jurisdiction or another. I really support Mika, the whole concept of regulatory harmonization, right. legal clarity and certainty, that's awesome. It, I, it lowers the cost of business so dramatically. I mean, I think that is it, a big deal. It lowers the cost, but at the same time, you've got to ask the question, is it proportionate to like an incumbent new innovative startup industry? It's quasi-MIFID too. I mean, you're, you're bringing some activity within the scope of full financial services regulation. Is it too much? Not sure. That's going to be something that we'll have to explore. Is there a bit of a, I'm going to call it a tech infringement? You know, I can sell you a baseball bat on eBay and of course I'll 
operate to certain standards, etc. Now I digitize the, the baseball bat. Now I'm a full-blown financial services business. <laughs> Is it fully proportionate? Is it a bit unfair to sort of the incumbent industries who have like much, much, much greater degrees of flexibility? If you're an operating, if a firm or bank or whatever it might be, you have a longer period. It's much easier to comply with those standards. Is it an unfair waiting? Not sure. And then there are other things. I, I was also part of the Libra DM initiative. Yeah, to talk about that. I think this is an interesting rewind into history. It is. I found that like it was an incredible exercise and I'm not going to go into like masses of details. But when Mika came around and there was this whole, so you have this concept of an asset reference token and an e-money token, makes a lot of sense. It was, you know, slightly outside of the scope of the definition of e-money and, you know, we wanted it to operate within a regulator framework. But now people slightly forget that under Mika there's a significant test. And the significant test for that e-money issued token is, I think it's 10 million users or a 5 billion market cap, which in the stablecoin universe is not that big. Now, in that world, you're being brought within the remit of the European Central Bank. That's very significant. And some of the tests around whether you're significant or not, one of them anyway, is the degree to which the token is connected to the financial system. That's mm. amazingly wide. The scope is there for this activity to be brought within the remit of the ECB like a currency. And that's pretty significant. So Libra was like, I would say, the most compliant network that could have existed. I mean, it was just unbelievable. The but, initial plan is it was effectively a closed network, absolutely. right? Like I couldn't bridge assets out to Ethereum. Well, and it was a pooled, the value of the token would be stabilized by a pool of assets. The breakdown of that pool could have adjusted. It could have been 70% USD, 90% or 10%. It was a global waiting to create a new value. But of course, there was a massive global reaction to that, which I understand. And what happened? They listened, learned, adapted. Every single piece of information, listen, learn, adapt at every level. But it got to the point where you have, let's just call it many massive global unregulated stablecoin networks exploding in value. And then you have this one really regulated, really serious group of people coming together to define a standard and wanting to comply. And the authorities are, to an extent, slowing things down in an incredibly fast moving environment. And it just becomes impossible. That weights things towards unregulated environments, I'm afraid. So that, that, that was, I suppose, for me anyway, like slightly frustrating. The version of history that I hear repeated often is that the project collapsed because of the association to Facebook and sort of a general, at the time, distrust for big social networks and specifically Facebook. Is that your view or do you think it was more because it was crypto and it was somewhat disruptive to central banks and monetary mm. policy controls or perceived to be? It's very, very public, the, the view of Facebook and et cetera. But I mean, I'm not sure. I think it, I wouldn't wait it sort of too much one way or, or the other. Yeah. Ultimately, again, when that association was created, and if you look at the actual voting powers, if you look at the makeup of the board, it was controlled as a proper association. Facebook had no excessive voting powers or control. That, that's the reality. But of course, from a pure timing perspective, it became branded as a Facebook-only initiative. Not really fair, but that's the way the world works. Once you have that, there was a, a long sort of complex process around that and trying to sort of really explain to the world. And it did start to happen. But again, I do get slightly frustrated sometimes. I always say, for the industry to evolve, there has to be dialogue. There has to be open dialogue between the industry and the authorities. 
most of the industry wants to collaborate. So if we talk about compliance risk in, I don't know, decentralized finance, yeah, there's some fantastic on-chain compliance, zero-knowledge based systems that are trying to address the problem. So you can identify the risk and you can listen to the market and they can build the solution. If you're open enough to that, if you understand the way that Chainalysis works as a simple example, and you, you look at the analytics that are available, the starting point in conversations with banks five years ago was like, what are you talking about? You, you tell them, look, it's like coming to you with a 20 pound note and you sort of running an assessment from the second that that was created up to today on the deposit in the bank and they don't understand it they can't imagine they can't imagine it. but when they see it and it has to have that kind yeah. of openness and i put to libra broadly in that context yeah. like, you know it could have done could a lot of worked. things in lots of ways so i don't know the team from facebook that was leading the project a number of the key execs have now launched a new company that is payment services on the lightning network on yeah. bitcoin have you followed this at all is that so something? we're integrated we know david marcus and yeah. the team likes and yeah. so we are, as I say, when I talked about the bank being crypto blockchain native and we talked a little about USDC, we're also Lightning integrated. So you can make settlements and transactions effectively from your bank account application on the Lightning network. So you've got to be at the forefront of all of this stuff. We have a good degree of faith in David and his team. So They're doing some exciting stuff. Yeah. I, I, uh, I just started looking at that recently. I'm curious as you kind of forward project, it seems like everybody is rushing into stable coins and payment services. Like that feels like a hot topic these days for everybody that's building in crypto. Do you see a world where there's hundreds of these, maybe tens of these things that are all somewhat popular? Or do we end up converging around one or two or three? I mean, today there's kind of primarily three really popular stable coins if you judge by market cap and transaction mm. volume. Mm. Does that grow to a large number? Or do we stay at, at kind of that three to five range? That's a good question. I would say when people talk about stable coins and CBDCs in particular, I think yeah. that those will coexist and yeah. they, they perform very, very different functions in very different ways. I definitely don't agree that a US dollar issued stable coin will evaporate the stablecoin, a US dollar issue CBDC will absolutely not. Within the stablecoin universe, I think there's going to be, let's call it stablecoin currency fluctuations. So if the entire banking system of the US starts to completely disengage to the extent that it becomes difficult to interact with the SWIFT network or more and more and more difficult, will the global weighting of the USD stablecoin rebalance? I think that it in terms of the actual operators, the standards of regulation will increase. It is probably one of the biggest priorities of most authorities, the, the stablecoin universe. So at the moment, you know, what are the standards for the reserve of a stablecoin? If they're properly regulated, how those assets are deployed and used, most like Circle and Paxos and these guys very openly publish what those assets are doing and how they're being used. Are there going to be more and more standards that are defined as to how that can happen? I think there will. Will everyone be able to comply with them? I don't think that they will. So I'm not sure I would expect there to be 20 massive global stablecoins. I, I think it may be a little bit narrower than that. I would tend to agree. Shifting topics a little bit, Blockchain Africa Conference just yeah. happened recently. Zappo is a huge sponsor. What's your take on what's going on in, in Africa as it relates to crypto and stablecoins and Bitcoin? Like all of our data at Chainalysis suggests grassroots adoption in the main 
main African markets. It's yeah. just off the charts. Some of the most rapid adoption in the world. What's your sense on the ground of like, why is that happening? And it seems the regulatory regime is actually kind of against it in, mm. in many countries. And it's happening in spite of the, the regulatory approach. Yeah, I mean, it is. And in Africa, you know, South America to an extent. The other day, there was some announcement in Argentina, mm -hmm. these sort of new restrictions for PSPs yeah. engaging yeah. with the industry in a certain way. The flight of capital, that's the main concern in some countries in Latin America, etc. Right. In Africa, it's, it's also slightly different. I would say it's very, very difficult to broadly brush an entire continent, but from a regulatory perspective, there are things in development. In Latin America, the focus is much more sort of tax-driven and cross-border control-driven than actual regulatory infrastructure-driven. But in Africa, you know, it's different, right? So it's not necessarily around crypto trading. It's, again, around this idea of, I'm going to talk in the Bitcoin context, a, a unit of value that's outside of the control of a local authority or currency system or central bank, etc. Sorry to intervene. Joey and I actually recorded this conversation at Link's EMEA. There was a great main stage presentation that touched on this topic of crypto adoption in Africa. The co-founders of Busha, Michael Adieri and Moyo Sidipo, reinforced what Joey is explaining in regards to the reason for grassroots adoption in Africa. The youthful population, plus challenges with capital restrictions, are the driving force. Let's listen in. So in the Nigerian market, it's a very peculiar one, and Nigeria is currently the leading country in terms of adoption of cryptocurrency in Africa, and we're part of the top 20 countries globally, and this is from the Chainalysis Global Adoption Index. Nigeria is also the most populous African nation with about 200 million citizens, and the median age of, of the Nigerian population at the moment is 19 years old, and this is, is an indication of the kind of demographic of the users that we have. We have a lot of users that are, so to say, youths, and it's something that sort of drives the adoption. You see these people attract to make payments or pay for things abroad and due to capital controls in the country, they need to make use of cryptocurrency to do these things. So for example, you're trying to purchase something from Amazon or eBay, you need to purchase cryptocurrency, use it to buy some sort of gift card that you can use to check out on that website outside the country. Obviously, Joey and the Busha founders are very much aligned about what's driving crypto adoption in Africa. It's not so much speculation as we see in other jurisdictions around the world. Now, let's jump back into the podcast where Joey continues with use cases from other countries of Africa, like Zimbabwe. Yeah, you can talk to people in some countries, I use a Zimbabwe example, about Bitcoin volatility risk, and they look at you and like, but what are you talking about? Re relative to the current currency. Vol volatility yeah. risk for me is not like that. But they're also like, some people, for whatever purpose they choose, they have their operating accounts and they're working solidly and securely. And, you know, it can be a, a very small percentage of their assets or part of their assets that they want to hold in a separate asset class or a separate country or whatever it is. The Swiss banking model doesn't work for a lot of people in Africa that don't have huge amounts of money. And some of them want exposure to these markets. They want the efficiencies. They want the disconnect from that local base, inverted commas, risk. So I think that's a big driver. We 
we're very excited about a lot of the stuff happening there. We're very excited about a lot of stuff happening in Latin America because we do feel that we plug that gap. That's exciting. Last question before I let you run back to sure. the conference. I always love to get people's outlook. And I used to ask, you know, what do you see over the next three to five years? And I realized that's a silly question to ask in crypto. So I'll constrain it a little bit to, you know, the remainder of this year. What gets you excited? And this can be specific to Zappo Bank or it can be, you know, broadly to the industry. Look, what are you excited about? I mean, like there are going to be lots of challenges. The DeFi universe and what's happening in that universe, the P2P networks, unhosted wallet universe, all of that stuff. I understand and I believe in it to an extent. I also think a lot of it's a little bit naive. You can't sit with a regulatory authority, show them liquidity pool risk report of a decentralized exchange and say, oh, but don't worry, it's all fine because it's decentralized. The fact that people still think that that's going to be completely out of the scope of any activities is wrong. But from our perspective, the I always say, so you, you're into the world of DeFi, what's the best DeFi project out there? I say it's the Bitcoin protocol. That was the best and biggest and that's a DeFi network yeah, and platform. Yeah. So how do people today gain access to DeFi? They do it through Zappo, they do it through Coinbase, they do it through Binance. They have intermediaries that gain and give access to that ecosystem in a secure way, yeah. you'd hope. So when I talk about DeFi, I think it's very exciting. Again, in the context of Zappo, we are the access point to that network in a very simple, safe and secure way. And we're an exit point to that network. Do we want to allow access users to networks that we have a higher degree of faith in or protocols that we have a higher degree of security in? Yes. And I think authorities and people will look at that intermediary. And yes, I mean, there are lots of tech people that will always insist on MetaMask integration with Project ABC, but that's 5% of the world. If we want to get to 15 and 20% of the world, it's going to be a very different world. And I, I'm excited that you know, we can play a part in that. We kind of already offer the facility and that will continue to evolve. And I think the CFI to DeFi, TriFi to DeFi will be one of the evolution points. And I think we're in a very good position in that sense. Exciting. Great place to end. Joey, thanks so much for hey, being on the Ian, podcast. Thanks very much. Yeah. Good to be here. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, do me a favor, take out your phone and head over to your favorite social media app. You can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube. You can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis on any of those platforms. Now you might've heard on July 6th, the cross-chain bridge protocol, multi-chain, experienced unusually large withdrawals. The operating team has indicated the withdrawals were unauthorized, and now everyone is speculating about the nature of what appears to be either a very large hack or possibly a rug pull orchestrated by insiders. In either case, this latest issue for multi-chain resulted in losses of more than $125 million, making it one of the biggest attacks on record. Cross-chain bridges have proven lucrative targets for hackers and seem to be less secure than the blockchains they connect. However, multi-chain has experienced several notable issues recently, which have prompted public suspicions that this recent exploit was carried out by someone other than a hacker. Head to the link in the show notes where we'll share what we know so far about the multi-chain exploit. 